The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I am Molly Balin. And I am Eric Deutsch. And we welcome back again Chris Frain from Open the Podcast Doors Hal Podcast. Hello. Welcome back to prison. <laughs> it sorry, cracks me up every time because it's <laughs> it's just so kind and casual. <laughs> So yes, welcome back, and uh, thanks for surviving to Minute 17, uh, and uh, I just ruined a bunch of stuff in Minute 16 with what starts, so um, <laughs> I appreciate you trying to keep the mystery, Eric, but... <laughs> What's the uh, body s- part, Molly? What is it? <laughs> it's a finger! What? <laughs> So we begin this minute with an unveiling of the blanket, the finger blanket, and it ends with a, a call from the vice president. So, uh, yeah, uh, they cut off the president's finger. They mean business. The finger has the uh, official, uh, I'm going to use uh, Dune terminology here. It has the ducal signet ring on it. Yeah. I mean, that's how you got to prove that it's the president's finger you have. And not just some rando out there. I didn't, I didn't know the president had an official ring. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Couldn't they have taken the ring off the president's hand and, I mean, cut anyone's finger off and stuck it on there? How do we know that is the presidential finger? Why did they have to cut someone's finger off to begin with? Well, I mean, come on. It's Manhattan prison. It's, it's, it's Romero. It's the Duke. They're all crazy. Why wouldn't they cut off a finger? They could have just taken the ring and said, we have the president. Here's his ring. Uh, that's proof enough that we got him. Hey, you got to show you mean business. We're not fucking around. <laughs> no, but it's like the big Lebowski, right? So, you know, we got we to gotta show a toe here to make sure that people are serious. And it's also badass because it's like, look, we're, we're going to take them apart bit by bit. Right. Like, you know, what's the next thing they're going to do? All right, you guys screwed on us? Yeah, next we're going to take a whole foot. Here's the presidential foot still in its sock. There's an old, uh, I don't know if you're fans of Mr. Show. That was a sketch comedy show back in the 90s that had Bob Odenkirk of uh, Better Call Saul fame. Yeah, I saw, I, I saw like a couple of episodes of it years ago. And uh, David Cross of Arrested Development fame. And they had a sketch, and it was Bob Odenkirk as a inept kidnapper. <laughs> and he would say, I, I just remember this thing where he's on the phone, and he's disguising his voice. And he says, did you find the toe? Meaning the toe of the person he kidnapped. And they're like, yeah, but it's not a kid's toe. It looks like a full-grown adult's toe. And then he looks down at his own foot, and it's all covered in bandages. <laughs> And he realized he cut off his own toe. That's all I can think of when, I, when, I, when he reveals the finger there. I think of the Seinfeld episode when Kramer has to 
get his girlfriend's toe to the hospital to get reattached, and he sticks it in a box, a Cracker Jack box with ice cubes, and drives the bus there. Yeah, I find this to be uh, a pretty effective, you know, mob-like threat here. You know, it's enough to, uh, oh, I mean, that and, you know, Romero's great boundaries here of, you know, you do anything, he dies, and starts counting them out here, too. Yeah, that's great. I mean, Hauk says we're ready to talk, and you know, which is an interesting thing in of itself, because we're not really sure what he's allowed to offer or what he's prepared to offer. We haven't, we weren't shown anything in the movie of him being briefed by anyone in the federal government before he goes in. So when he says we're, we're ready to talk, is he just trying to stall for time? Is he trying to figure out the situation? Is it just a negotiating question? Or did something happen off screen that we don't know about that he was given information? But Romero doesn't care. You know, the Duke has obviously told him, here's what you say, get these guys out of here. And Hauk's trying to talk, and Romero just continues that countdown, you know, keeps that stare going, doesn't change his facial expression, doesn't change his tone, just numbers keep dropping down and down, and he wins the round. Hauk's got a bail. Well, ultimately, if you're uh, already essentially sentenced to death in the Manhattan maximum security prison, because no one gets out, there's no time off for good behavior, right? You've burned your bridge behind you in terms of negotiate negotiations. And therefore, when you say, you know, 30 seconds or you touch me and the president dies, there's no, you've, you know that you're dealing with someone who has nothing to lose. And that's such a brilliant um, uh, facet of the premise of this movie. But these are people with absolutely nothing to lose, and you've given them the president of the United States as a bargaining chip. You know, it's interesting you say that because later on in the minute, um, once we later on get to how talking on the phone with the vice president, he says a line that, that ties into what you're talking about. He says, we're lucky if he's not dead already. And I found that interesting because why would the, – the, the prisoners have no – reason for killing the president. Romero told them he's still alive. They just cut off the finger. There's no way that Hal could possibly think that the prisoners are going to kill the greatest bargaining chip they've ever had. Like you said, this great bargaining chip. So it's, it's interesting. I, I feel like something's somewhere is missing here with, with Hauk saying we're prepared to talk, but we didn't see him get briefed. And then we've got Hauk saying we're lucky if he's not dead already when there's really no reason for the prisoners to kill him. I feel like there's just something missing. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I feel like there was a little bit in that conversation with the vice president that you are missing some some contextual information about, you know, what's and I think we talked about that a couple minutes ago about like, we're not really sure what briefings have taken place between the Pentagon or the White House. Right. You know, there's there's a part of me that, you know, as the vice president, it's like, well, you know, we what's great about the story, actually, the screenplay is that, you know, there's this additional motivation. We'll find out a little bit later of, you know, what uh, the president has, you know, shackled to his arm that he took off with the briefcase, Um, because otherwise I can see a real case with being like, well, you got a vice president, you know, who can take over for the president. You may just want to go ahead and be like, you know, thank you for your service, sir. And move on because you're not going to, you know, get him back. It's, you know, worse to try and I think strategically, I think it would be far worse to try and storm the island 
to get him back, you know, considering. Yeah, and the, the draft script actually has, once Hauk's back in the command center, he's not actually on the phone. There's a bunch of DC bigwigs have come to the command center. Interestingly, none of them, the vice president's identified as like the secretary of defense, secretary of state, uh, a couple of other people arguing about what they should do, sitting around a table and arguing. And so that that didn't survive outside of the draft script process. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if this is the right place to bring this up, but I'll bring it up anyways. I feel like when I every time I've watched this film, I get the impression that the president is sort of a figurehead president and is really held in like low esteem by the people around him. Like it would not be that great a loss if they, if if he was dead, you know, they'll, they'll put in a a good faith effort to, to bring him back, but it's really not that important. And I know, and, and it seems like, it always seems like the thing in the briefcase is more important than the president himself. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. It sure seems that way. I mean, well, we'll get to it in uh, another week or two as Hauk is briefing Pliskin. And the whole reason that there's this 22, 24-hour time limit is specifically because of what the president has in the briefcase and what it means to something that's going on in another part of the country. So, yeah, it's the briefcase, I think, the briefcase is really the MacGuffin of the movie, not the president. It's just like Pulp Fiction. Now, we uh, we went, we left, um, we jumped ahead to the command center, but we left a couple of things out here before we leave the prison that I want to make sure I call out. First of all, we've got our next song on the soundtrack playing here. Uh, it's called He's Still Alive slash Romero. And speaking of Romero, we have what might be my single favorite second of his in the movie. Hauk runs away. They're leaving. We cut back to Romero and we get... <sighs> oh, that is... I, I have no idea why that's awesome. But since I was a little kid, this has been one of... I love it. Those are my exact notes of I don't I don't know why this is awesome it it and it's so bizarre and it's still unsettling to me when he does that 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 weird noise um but it just shows that like he he's reveling in having this power over all these people armed with assault rifles he has nothing, you know, other than this bargaining chip. Um, but yet he's more terrifying in this moment than than everybody else. I was reading that uh, Doubleday said that the hissing sounds that Romero makes were inspired by Margaret Hamilton's Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz. Huh. Does she, does she hiss? I'm trying to think of this off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm trying to recall... A hissing Wicked Witch of the West, but that is the research that I found. She throws her head back at, at her moments of of what she perceives as triumph. So I think I think it's the more the physical uh, performance than than the actual vocal. Yeah, but I love it. I think that this moment of him making this kind of animalistic 
comeuppance on their way out the door is amazing. It's just, ugh. And it, it's true, he absolutely does just set the tone for what they're dealing with here, that there's this level of crazy. And that's what's brilliant about him, too, is that it just leads so well that we understand as an audience that this is not going to get done by an army. Yeah, he sends them running to back to the helicopters in the in this minute. I mean, to a point that one of these soldiers almost eats it on his way out the door. That's really funny. I noticed that, you know, doing my close rewatch, taking notes, stopping it every three seconds uh, thing that you do for a Movies by Minute podcast. And I notice, yeah, there's one of the soldiers that, that trips like twice in this minute. Yeah. Which seconds? I'm trying to find it right oh, now. Oh, I, 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 I don't have it handy, but. Okay. All right. This, uh, it's about 14, 15 seconds in. This is exciting listening for our listeners right now. So uh, they do bail. We do end up in the command center. And I got to call out this display of lights of the grid of the Manhattan grid that's on the wall here. So we have a light display of Manhattan. And for some reason, it's landscape, not portrait. I have no idea why. I, I assume filming reasons. Um if 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 we used cameras that filmed portrait instead of landscape, it would probably be the way it's supposed to be, the way Manhattan is actually oriented. So I, I, I can only assume that they wanted a tight shot, and so they had to turn this thing on its side. Um, it's in four sections. We've got the southern part of Manhattan is in blue and is section A. Then we've got eh, maybe, I'm thinking that runs up to 23rd Street maybe, we got the orange area. Section B looks like maybe 23rd to Central Park South. We get what looks to me is yellow. Uh, covers Central Park South to the, the top of Central Park. That is Section C. And then Section D, top of Central Park to the rest of the island, Section D. That's in red. And so I guess this is just a way that the command center has four basic sectors that they keep track of. And two things of note that stick out to me that clear one clears something up that I've been talking about in previous minutes and one continues to frustrate me so the thing that is cleared up is Roosevelt Island looking at this map on the bottom part of the map it would be underneath the orange section section B there's the green shape that's Roosevelt Island and the fact that it's surrounded in green means that it is walled off. The green is the wall. And so that means Roosevelt Island does not have its own society. It means Roosevelt Island is not part of Manhattan Prison. It's been completely walled off, and it's probably just abandoned and just a random empty island now sitting there in the East River. So, Molly, all my thoughts about Roosevelt Island and there being an awesome, wacky society there, all for naught. It obviously does not exist. That's a bummer. As I understand it, in real life, there is a uh, a wacky society that lives on. <laughs> on yes, <Roosevelt>. yes, <laughs> there is. Uh, it's it's a it's it's a strange place to be because you go there and you're in Manhattan. Roosevelt Island is part of Manhattan, and you don't even know you're in the middle of New York City because the southern part of the island is there's a hospital. And I haven't been there in a few years, but I, I, they're building, like, a tech campus there. 
and there's, there's some trees. There's a, there's a little park, and then the northern part of the island is where people live. It's and it's like this really small little quiet hamlet in the middle of New York City. And people that live on Roosevelt Island, there's just, you know, it, it takes a certain person to live there because you, there's one subway stop and, or there's the tram and, or you have to drive into Queens and it's just one bridge. And it's, it's a very, it's just a weird place to be. And I, I, I have been there a bunch of times uh, for a job I had years ago. That's why I've been there a bunch of times. Otherwise, I never would have even been there. But yeah, I, I, I had been holding out hope. I had mentioned it in a couple of previous episodes, but unfortunately, it appears to be abandoned. So is this more like Studio 54, or is this more like Stepford Wives in terms of culture on this island? I would say Stepford Wives. Ah, okay. And, and I believe there's some sort of tram system. Yeah, the tram runs from um, the east side of Manhattan, and, it, land, and it, it goes, all it does, it goes back and forth between the east side of Manhattan and Roosevelt Island all day long, back and forth. And people know it, it's, you know, it's, it's been in, it's in the Spider-Man movie, it's, it's, a, it's in all kinds of TV shows, it's, it's a famous thing. People ride it just, just to ride it sometimes, you get a good view up and down the East River if you go on it. It's, only, it's, a, it's like a three minute ride, maybe. It's interesting. We have a tram here in Portland. Uh, Oregon Health Sciences University is uh, in the southwest part of town, top of a hill. And there's this, I mean, it looks like a death trap, but basically it's like a silver, um, like, airstream that's suspended in the sky <laughs> that you can take from, um, and, and I know this because I work on the, the non-OHSU side, and you can take, you can spend like seven bucks and you can go across. But it's it's definitely like a tourist thing. Like, nobody who even works at the hospital really takes it. It's just kind of like a random, you know, tram. So I'm kind of curious about this one to this island, and then we'll move on. But is that more of like a tourist thing, or is that like a legit transportation mode? It, it's it's both. Um, if you go on it at a random time of the day, it's pretty much going to be all tourists just using it for the view or to go check out Roosevelt Island for an hour or two. If you're there at rush hour, you know, there are people that do use it who live there. But I... I probably most people that live there probably either drive or use the subway because it only it's it only makes the one stop on uh, Second Avenue. It's like the, but Second Avenue in or First a uh, Second Avenue in Manhattan, eh, Second or First. Like I've, I haven't been on it in a long time, so it's it's not the most convenient location because then you have to still walk to the subway if you need to take the subway. Uh, well, since we are uh, checking out this um, weirdly positioned neon map, um, when we have a a gentleman who's got the uh, vice president on the phone here uh, for Bob Howe, this is a great shot, by the way. I think this is really interesting. And I love this gentleman who's the, the go-between is like putting his hand over the phone headset to pass a message off to Hauk. I love that he's like, kind of like the wife in the background, like, you know, tell him we have to go with your plan. It just totally cracks me up. It's like one of my favorite like moments in this movie. Don't tell him I'm home. Yeah. I'm not here. I'm not here. That and Bob's just like super casual. Like Bob just has like a vast set of balls. Like he's got the vice president on the phone. He's just kind of like, meh. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he just got out of the prison. The president's captured. He has no finger. He's talking to the vice president. He's like, this is Bob Houck. I mean, just so nonchalant. Well, it'd be like if Dan Quayle called you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
How excited would you really be? Well, then that's why they've got to save the president. Oh, no. Oh, my God. That totally puts this whole scene in perspective for me. Thank you. It's totally like getting a call from Dan Quayle. Oh, Bob's not super concerned. And then just to get back to the map for one other thing, the, 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 the other thing about the map that I notice and that so it continues to drive me crazy, Molly, is because the shot cuts off before at some point the southern part of the 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 scene is cut, of the map is cut off by the shot so we don't see still where the wall ends at the southern part we still do not have a sense of where the hell does that wall at, uh, once we get into New York Harbor how the hell do they close that wall off at the southern part and why is it not just cut off right there just south of the land this is going to drive me crazy because i don't know that we're even going to get i don't think we're going to get an answer to this you know i i just don't think i'm going to get an answer i mean i think obviously there weren't any new yorkers on the production team for this because i feel like they would have broken this down or or i would have at least i <laughs> they don't have <laughs> someone as nuts as me about it no but i think it's important right because like part of the there new york is a character specifically manhattan is a character in this movie it's a huge context for everything, symbolically. So I find it very interesting that this, this wasn't something that was firmly worked out in terms of boundaries. It's mentioned, but we don't really have a great sense of it. So Chris, what, uh, what's your history with this movie? When it came out in 81, this will date me, um, I was nine years old. And so R-rated movies, completely not allowed. For me to go to um so i remember it coming out but i remember it immediately being thrown onto the heap of well i'll never get to see that one and this was right at right before um the time when every family would have a vcr right so movies came and went and you and maybe you saw them and maybe you didn't and so when this came out, wasn't allowed to see it. I figured, well, there it goes. Looks pretty exciting from the commercials, but oh well. And then um, I I remember watching it on cable in, it was probably like right around 1990 or so, or 91, early 90s. And it was either like, TBS or USA Network or one of those. And I remember immediately laughing at the year is 1997, you know, or, or, uh, you know, when does the crime rate go up by 400%? I forget what year that happens in the premise, but I just remember laughing at, oh yeah, we're already practically there, you know, (laughs) which is the danger of doing the, in the not too distant future type movie. Um, but I remember really enjoying it on cable and also, um, it, it started to really find a cult following around then around the, the early to mid nineties. And it was just sort of one of those movies that was always on, on a late night, you know, on cable somewhere. And so you would just, it was just one of those movies you would, you would maybe join in the middle of on TV and watch it. 
And it was only when I got into making electronic music that I went, oh yeah. And I remember the score for this movie is amazing. And so I'm going to go out and buy a copy of the film, mostly to have the score for it, you know, and, and fitting the, the mood of the, of the film. And then it was, um, and I mentioned this in in the previous episode, I mentioned the show Mystery Science Theater. They showed a an Italian knockoff of Escape from New York called Escape 2000. So it was a movie made immediately after <laughs> Escape from New York. I think it was made in like 1982 or three. And it was also called Escape from the Bronx. And it was actually a sequel to a movie called Bronx Warriors. Okay. So anyways, going back to Escape 2000, that is my favorite episode of Mystery Science Theater. And I remember going, wow, this feels a lot like a really dumb version of Escape from New York. And so in a weird way, watching that knockoff film enhanced my appreciation for Escape from New York, which I always chalked up as kind of a neat B-movie, you know, kind of, you know, a fun movie, but not, you know, something to obsess over. And then I, I then I started really paying attention to Escape from New York after watching that. Um, so it, it's a weird path to Escape from New York nerddom. Um, and, and especially because the film, and, and I might be wrong, this is my impression, as you know, a nine-year-old at the time and my remembering of an impression, but um, you know, the film came and went, it did well. And and if, and if you remember, there wasn't a sequel until 1996, which I think was entirely made because it was because escape from New York was being played in heavy rotation on TBS or USA network or whatever. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's just an interesting uh, path to that. It, 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 it very similar in my mind to Blade Runner, which I, I, I also have a similar appreciation for. Like it came and went in 1982. I wasn't allowed to see it and then saw it on cable a bunch of times and went, oh, wow, this is a really interesting film. And sort of only in it only found its audience uh, later on. You know, maybe maybe 10, 15 years after its initial release. Yeah, uh, for 1981, it was only number 32 for box office. So, you know, it wasn't a bomb by any means, but it was not an enormous hit either. Yeah, I bet like Clash of the Titans probably financially did better than Escape from New York. I bet you're right. Yeah, so we didn't, you know, it wasn't like everyone in my fifth grade class was going, hey, did you see Escape from New York? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, there wasn't really, like, a, a buzz about it. Um, it was only when we were already in our, you know, 20s or so that we went, oh, yeah, you know what I saw last night on TV? Escape from New York, and it's actually pretty good. Well, I got another question tying, you, tying your podcast into into this movie. If... Uh... As, as deranged and run down and hopeless and disgusting as Manhattan Prison is, do you think if left alone, 
evolutionarily, Manhattan Prison could ever get to a point that a monolith would appear inside the prison. I, I absolutely. Um, it has to happen. Um, I think. Okay, so now that you put me on the spot, <laughs> I think the rest of the world somehow falls apart and because of its isolation manhattan is all that's left of humanity and that's what is visited by the monolith and that transforms humanity into some sort of space babies or something like that so yes (laughs) i think i just read something uh today that in the novelization of Escape from New York, there is a, uh, not not even a subplot, just a detail about the world of the movie that the rest of the population is slowly going insane and or dying off because of the use of nerve gas yeah. in yeah. World War III. Uh, yeah, they... That the countries, instead of using nuclear weapons, they use nerve gas instead, and slowly but surely, the entire country's going insane. Yep. Yep, and that's why the the, the uh, Romero and the Duke and all and Cabby and all those guys they're going to survive because they're in that walled off uh, compound there. Uh, one of my notes is that uh, the map of Manhattan in the neon reminds me of a 1980s. Uh, mall directory (laughs) (laughs) yeah like you know awesome you know spencer's gifts is in sector a uh (laughs) macy's is in sector b uh b dalton oddly enough is in sector c a bit of a light bright feel to it also yeah yeah no i really enjoy i and it is funny i made the same note about why is it oriented east west (laughs) when it should be north south um, but I just, that, that future world of the early eighties is my jam. Like visually it re- really resonates with me. So like another good example of it is, um, there's a Netflix series. Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it that takes place in like a, a fictitious early eighties it's got Jonah Hill in it. Oh, I'm racking Maniac? my head. What's up? Maniac? That's it. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, and it has that similar like visual vibe to it, I think. Um, except in this case, it's real. Like This is what they thought the future would look like. In the case of Maniac, they're trying to remember what people in the early 80s thought the future would look like. You know? So it's like one step removed. Um, but yeah, uh, this design aesthetic, I really enjoy, um, you know, lots of computers with blinking lights. Gotta love that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Why don't you, uh, plug your show now? Okay. Uh, our little show about, uh, 2001, a space odyssey covering that one minute at a time is called open the podcast doors. How? And uh, you can find that on all your major pod catchers, like iTunes. And also, we have an Instagram feed called open, at Open the Podcast Doors Hell. And on Twitter, you can find us at 2001 Podcast. And we have a listeners group 
on Facebook called Space Station 5. Yeah, awesome. So uh, we've got that one. We're doing this one. There's there's way more than 100 movies by minutes out there now. So if uh, you like this format, check out moviesbyminutes.com. There's a good chance that there's a lot of movies on there. If you like this movie that you'll also enjoy listening to. My, uh, my previous one was Flash Gordon Minute. Molly previously did Cabin in the Woods, which Molly wasn't actually called Cabin in the Woods Minute, right? Yeah, Cabin Minute Cast. Cabin Minute Cast. Don't cut off my finger for not remembering that, please. Uh, and so check that out. And uh, the check out the guys who started it all, the Star Wars Minute guys, Pete and Alex. We, we owe them our thanks for creating this format and letting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of us borrow the format for our favorite movies. So come chat with us on Facebook, Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. Chat with us on Twitter, NY Minute Pod. Subscribe, rate, and review, and make us so very, very happy. Uh, But even if you don't, please be on time, please stay out of the sewers, and we'll see you on the other side of the wall.